Hello, I'm Avril Jenks, Features Editor of LSJ Media. I'm speaking with Paul Kilday, Associate Professor at University of New South Wales Law and Justice. Paul is an expert in public law. Today he's outlining the history and mechanics of referendums and how the referendum for The Voice could play out in a change to the Constitution. We spoke to Paul via Microsoft Teams, and unfortunately, during the process, he was involved in an evacuation due to a fire alarm. You may hear sounds in the background. You'll also hear how skilled Paul is and how knowledgeable in managing to still share his wisdom with us. Thank you. Hi, Paul. Thanks so much for agreeing to talk to me today about the referendum and the mechanics of a referendum and also about your belief that referendums can cause uh, or bring about significant change. It's my pleasure, Avril. I've studied referendums for a while now. It's a, a topic of enduring interest to me. So it's great to talk to you today. And obviously, we're living in very interesting times. We are. And um, yesterday, the bill was um, authorised. So the referendum is going to go ahead for The Voice. And this is a really timely moment for us to explain for um, all our members and listeners just what it is about a referendum that um, is important to know at this point. Great. Look, I'm very happy to, to be here to talk about that. I think uh, it's been a really long time since we've held a referendum. It's 24 years now. So if uh, you are under 40, you haven't voted in a referendum before. But I think for everyone, um, we need a bit of a civics refresher because um, we perhaps have uh, forgotten what it means to vote in a referendum and what are the sorts of things that are helpful for us to know as we prepare to cast our vote on referendum day. So what are those things that are important to know? And what are the steps in a referendum, if you can explain that as well as you go along? Yeah, sure. So in terms of the steps for a referendum, uh, first of all, you need um, the parliament to uh, consider and approve a proposed amendment to the constitution. So what happens there is that the government introduces a bill uh, with the proposed change in it, and that is then debated and needs to be passed by absolute majorities in both the House and the Senate. And that's the stage we're at now with the voice referendum. So the proposed um, constitutional change to bring about the, the voice uh, has now passed the House and the Senate. And, and really now it's over to us as the people. So that proposal needs to be put to a referendum uh, within six months. And for it to pass, uh, there needs to be what is called approval by a double majority. So a proposal needs approval from a majority of voters nationally, plus a majority of voters in a majority of states. So that's a majority in at least four of six states. The reason we have that, that um, double uh, requirement there is because we're a federal system. And so we need approval both nationally and by a certain number of states. Uh, and in terms of what it's going to look like on, on the day, uh, in many ways, election um, uh, referendums run much like elections. We'll have a ballot paper uh, that we'll need to fill out. But instead of choosing candidates, we'll be writing yes or no uh, to a question to change the constitution. And uh, people can vote early. They can vote by post. They can vote in person. I assume there'll be democracy sausages, uh, just as there are at election <laughs> times. So in many ways, it will run much like an election. 
Um, Paul, have all referendums in Australia in the past also been on the yes and no question? Yes, they have. Um, um, certainly that's the case for all constitutional referendums. The way um, the constitution works is that if you would like to change it, you need uh, to put that change in a bill and then that proposed amendment is put to the people for them to answer yes or no to. So that's the only option. Mm -hmm. So it's not possible to say, have on a ballot paper four possible changes to the constitution and then and then perhaps we could rank them. Um, but if we look at some plebiscites that have been held, um, what we would call advisory referendums on policy issues, in 1977 there was a, a plebiscite on uh, what national song Australia should have. And um, there we were presented with four different options um, and Advance Australia Fair uh, won um, both outright and in terms of uh, the uh, overall um, uh, preferred vote as well once you combined all the preferences. But yes, in constitutions, it's a yes or no vote. So a plebiscite looks different, does it? Yeah, so the word plebiscite is usually only used in Australia. Um, basically what it is is an advisory referendum on a policy question. And we can contrast that with what's happening with the voice referendum where it's a, a question about changing the constitution, um, not policy, uh, and the result will be binding. Um, so a plebiscite uh, advisory and doesn't affect the constitution and the best example I can give is the same-sex marriage survey that many of us participated in in 2017. Uh, so there we were asked whether we supported a change to the law that authorised same-sex marriage um, and a majority of Australians voted yes to that. Uh, that wasn't legally binding on the parliament um, but obviously politically persuasive and the parliament after that vote um, chose to introduce same-sex marriage by Commonwealth legislation. Oh, thank you. Um, how about explaining now how we implement a referendum because that will be a different process? Implementation of referendum outcomes is quite interesting. If we're thinking about constitutional referendums like The Voice, um, the result, as I say, is binding. And so what happens is that once the people approve it, um, we're effectively approving the bill that has already passed through the parliament. So the next step after a yes vote is for the Governor-General to sign off on the bill. And then at that minute, um, the constitution has been changed. And so that is how a referendum outcome is implemented. Um, and after that, it can be quite simple. So for instance, in 1977, we voted yes to a proposal to um, uh, introduce a retirement age of 70 for federal judges, and they used to serve for life. And it just meant that after that point, any new judges that were appointed were appointed until the age of 70. So it's very simple to implement that referendum. But if it's a referendum that introduces a new power or a new institution, then there may be a phase after the referendum where there's still a bit of public debate about how aggressively should the new power be used or exactly how should the new body operate. Um, and perhaps as an example, we can think about the 1967 referendum, which gave a new power to the Commonwealth to make laws with respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. And after that, for a number of years, the Commonwealth didn't really use that new power very much. 
it still left much of the lawmaking to the states on um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people uh, matters. And so there was a debate there about how much should the Commonwealth use its new power. Uh, and, uh, and eventually the Commonwealth began to make more use of it under the Whitlam government and beyond. I see. So in terms of the voice as well, if the voice is voted in as, you know, to be part of the constitution, do you foresee that same sort of period of change and maybe gradual implementation? I do. And it is by design. There's this design approach that has been taken here, which is sometimes called constitutional deferral. And the idea is that you establish a principle or a body in a constitution, and then you leave it to the legislature uh, to work out the details of operation later. And that is what is happening with the voice. Um, if we vote yes, we will be voting yes to the creation of a, a new body to be known as the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. Its constitutional um, capacity or function will be to make representations to the parliament and the government. But in terms of how it operates, um, you know, for example, what is the size of its membership going to be? Um, uh, who, uh, how are those members going to be selected? Um, what is its resourcing going to be? Those sorts of questions are being left deliberately to the parliament to decide after the referendum. So uh, if we have vote yes uh, later in the year at this referendum, um, what we will see is, quite, I, I would say, a, 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 a process that goes for some time, perhaps a year or more, of intense negotiation and consultation with First Nations groups across the country um, about what what sort of uh, what shape the voice should take, uh, and then a, a period of parliamentary debate and deliberation about um, about that as well before a, a law of some kind is introduced um, to establish that you know, in statute. Right. So even though there's been quite a bit of discussion, obviously, and debate and consultation already, you're saying that there will then be another period of consultation and deliberation if the referendum is successful. That's right. And um, the choice has been made not to put too much detail uh, in the constitution when establishing the voice. And, and that makes makes sense if you look at, say, the High Court and how that is established in the constitution. It's very bare bones um, and the detail is left to the parliament. And that's the case here. Um, and the, the the rationale behind it is you don't want to put too much detail around things like membership or selection in the constitution, because if it doesn't work out, you can't change it very easily. Um, and so the idea is you put the voice in the constitution so it has that status, can give advice or make representations. And beyond that, there's scope to adjust it over time to meet contemporary circumstances. And um, in terms of once the, or once the process is underway, the referendum process, how do we ensure there's due diligence in the process? So that, you know, the mechanics of the process now. Well, that's right. We know the referendum has to be held within six months and, uh, and then the campaign proper will happen probably in four or six weeks before the vote. And, um, and I guess this can be a really challenging time. Um, if you look back at past referendums in Australia, they tend to be really noisy and boisterous affairs. Mm. Um, there's a lot of information out there, but there's also a lot of opinion. And I think part of the challenge for all of us is to be able to make sense of just the immense amount of information and arguments um, that are being circulated now 
And that's only going to increase as we um, get closer to the vote. Um, and I think it is difficult for people, particularly people who perhaps are engaging in this issue quite late. Um, and a big question that I'm interested in as a, as a researcher in this area is, is what role can law play here in, in making um, our referendum process more informed and deliberative? Uh, and so the law, for example, um, could uh, introduce penalties for certain types of misinformation. Um, you can also introduce legal protections against the excessive influence of money. We don't tend to have those protections um, federally, uh, so we, we, we kind of leave our worries about misinformation and, and money to uh, common sense and good practice. Um, that doesn't always work out, and I think we're already seeing that. There's, uh, there's a lot of good faith um, arguments being made in the public sphere, but there's also a lot of misinformation out there as well, um, and, and, you know, that's a real shame. Yes, and it sounds like you're actually an advocate for, uh, you know, clearing away the misinformation and so on and a better process. Are you actually on any kind of um, body or in any organisation which is working towards a better process? Uh, so I, I, I suppose um, I'm a member of the Gilbert and Tobin Centre of Public Law uh, here at the University of New South Wales and a, a number of us are interested in, in this challenge. Um, in fact, uh, some of my colleagues uh, and have joined me in establishing uh, a, a Twitter uh, um, account called Referendum Q&A, where we seek to identify and respond to um, uh, uh, incorrect claims or inaccurate claims about the voice proposal and the referendum itself. Um, but uh, beyond that, uh, I suppose I, I've been making submissions and presenting evidence over a number of years around these issues and um, really arguing for the importance to update our referendum laws um, so that we don't leave these things to chance. Um, and if you look, uh, for example, at South Australia or the ACT, they do have some protections against um, you know, false uh, election advertisements. And... Uh, it, it does create challenges because, you it, you know, that you are going to have to appoint someone, um, perhaps the electoral commissioner or perhaps a special body within an electoral commission who has the authority to decide what is true and what's not. So there are difficulties um, and challenges, but I think establishing some stronger legal protections against misinformation would send a strong signal mm. and hopefully take some of the edges off our referendum debate, which doesn't always live up to the deliberative ideals that we might otherwise hold. Right. And what about um, questions like or comments that the referendum's expensive, so it, you know, it's going to cost the taxpayer? Do you, do you have any um, opinion on that? My, my response to, to that sort of claim is that democracy is expensive. And, uh, and so I think that if, if there is a genuine case for a, a change to the constitution, um, then we should spend the money um, to put, the, put that proposal to the people. Um, and uh, that's a strong enough justification for me. I mean, we obviously shouldn't be holding expensive referendums without good justification, but I don't think anyone could look at our um, record in Australia where we haven't held a referendum in a quarter century and say that we're overdoing it. Um, so I think if there is a genuine case for change, we should be we should be putting that change to the people. I, I think one of the um, 
the problems of the last few decades is that governments have become shy of holding referendums. Uh, that puts a lot of strain on the constitutional system. If you don't put um, much needed proposals to a vote, the constitutional system can stagnate. It, you end up involving the courts potentially in some contorted reasoning to try and help that constitutional document move with the times. Uh, so, I, yeah, if there's a genuine case for a proposal, doesn't mean everyone agrees with it, but if it's a good case for it, let's put it to the people and see what they say. Paul, I just wanted to end with a comment that you made recently. I'm going to just um, read it back to you. Um, we should work towards unlocking the potential of referendums to serve as sites for public deliberation on Australia's constitutional future. Yeah, that, that is something uh, that I wholeheartedly believe. And I suppose I wrote that in response to what I see as a prevailing view about referendums in Australia is that uh, they are very difficult to, to run and very difficult to win. Um, and I suppose part of my response to that is that we we should try and not think about referendums in strategic terms. You know, will they win or lose? Um, or you know, how, what can we do to make a referendum succeed? Let's leave that kind of question to the campaign strategists. I, I think really the question for, for us as citizens should be, uh, what do we want out of our referendums? Um, and if we're thinking about constitutional change, what do we want out of our constitution? Those are big questions. The questions about uh, how our political system and democracy should run. Um, and, I, and I think they're the questions we should be focused on. And I think referendums have a real role to play in fostering that deliberative um, space. Uh, I, I, they absolutely have their challenges. I mean, uh, critics of referendums would say um, they reduce complex questions to yes or no questions um, and that oversimplifies things. Critics also say that everyone gets to vote in a referendum no matter how ill-informed they are. But I think through careful design, we can address those uh, challenges. Um, and we shouldn't just be thinking about voting day um, to, to unlock the deliberative potential of referendums. Uh, one thing to think about is years out, how are we deciding what proposals um, should be put to the people? Um, and if we look to Ireland, uh, which holds a, a lot of referendums, they've started using citizens' assemblies. Um, so these are deliberative bodies made up of ordinary people, um, randomly selected, who you know, just people like you, know, you and me or the people you meet on the street who get an opportunity to learn about an issue from experts to talk about it and then to make recommendations. So that's a way of unlocking that deliberative potential um, for uh, you know, just regular citizens. Um, and, and then once you've decided what issue should go forward, then having a really careful process involving experts and legislators and community groups to refine that proposal so that it's clear and fair. And then when we get to the campaign stage, um, doing our, our best to make sure that fair and accurate and balanced information is made available to people um, and that we're all open-minded about the change. Um, I think um, these things are all within our power um, and ability to do. They're, often our practice doesn't meet those ideals. Um, uh, that, that is the case. Um, and um, But I think... Uh, uh, it's, it's possible for, for us to work towards their ideals, even if we don't meet them um, you know, all of the time. Um, and I think we all have a role to play in that, um, as do our politicians. 
Thanks, Paul. Um, um, thank you for grouping me with you as, um, you know, ordinary citizens. You're certainly a specialist. Whereas, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so maybe a final question then is um, what has drawn you to be so interested in the referendums and um, public law and so on? This is your area of special interest, isn't it? Yes, it really is. And, and I, I suppose it began when I did my PhD uh, on the constitutional reform process of the 1990s. And I thought it might end there, but I have continued on to look closely at referendums. I think for me, it's the combination of high ideals and kind of grubby political practice that referendums bring um, that really fascinates me. Um, so I I, I do believe in the democratic promise of referendums, you know, the idea that it provides an opportunity for uh, ordinary people to have a direct and unfiltered say on issues that affect them. I think representative democracy has many strengths, but one of its weaknesses is that it does tend to alienate people from decision-making and referendums are a way of empowering people and bringing them back into that decision-making process. Um, at the same time, you can't look at, referendums historically and not see that they so often fall short, sometimes well short of those democratic ideals. Um, and uh, and if you, you think about, um, say, even with the same-sex marriage vote, the proposal was put by a government, many members of whom just wanted to kill off that reform uh, or at least delay that reform. And my historical research just really bears that out. I've done some work on the 1890s and there are proposals to have referendums on women's suffrage. Um, a number of them were put by people who believed in women having the vote, and, but many others were put by people who um, did not believe in it and thought a referendum would be a good way of blocking it. So there's this really interesting combination of light and dark in referendums that I, I find fascinating. So there's high democratic ideals, but there's, it's also just bound up in everyday political practice, self-interest, um, strategic thinking. And I, and um, yeah, that, it's something that really keeps bringing me back to them. It's of enduring interest to me. Thanks, Paul. Um, that was a long pause because I think that's a wonderful place for that recording to end. And um, I feel so much more enlightened now and inspired, in fact, and I see my colleague who's recording us is nodding as well. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, I love the, the mix of the high values and the grubbiness. I think that, that was, that's really given me a bit of perspective and I'm sure it'll be the same for everybody who listens to this. So thank you so oh, much for yeah. agreeing to to this today. We've also, um, we'll be transcribing this, so we'll, um, you know, have your words recorded at some point. We might like sure. to share them if that's okay with you and maybe in some other publications that we're also just preparing on, on The Voice for our members. Well, yeah, absolutely. No, I'd be more than happy. And, and thank you for the invitation, Avril. I yeah, really enjoyed um, the opportunity to come and talk to you today. Thanks. Thanks so much, Paul. And um, I wish you well and I wish you a safe trip back into your building. Okay. Yes, it looks, <laughs> like, looks like the crisis is over. I'm to go Good. Okay. okay. All right. Thanks. Thanks, <laughs> Paul. You have you a later. lovely day. Thanks. You Bye. Too. Bye. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Law Society of New South Wales. Today's episode was hosted by myself, Avril Janks, and the executive producer is Francisco Silva. See you at the next time.